0: Hey, welcome to the C3 Church Victory Podcast. We pray this message will inspire you and activate your faith. Thanks for joining us. Welcome this morning. Uh, we are going to have a fantastic time in God's Word today. Um, you know what? If you read the Bible and you find it boring, uh, you're reading it the wrong way. And uh, I've had phases in my life where I've, it's been dry and I've struggled. Just change it up. Just do something different. Just approach it from a different perspective. You know? try, try doing a word search and uh, just reading a whole lot of different scriptures that relate around one thing in your life. Now, pick a book. Go through a book. Do, do something different. There is no prescribed way to read God's word. It is an opportunity to engage in, 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 in encountering uh, the person that the story is about, which is Jesus. All right? But we are in our... our our series through Mark and uh, I don't. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to sort of get too far ahead of ourselves. But I, uh, I feel like I feel like this. This journey through Mark, it's a little bit like. Uh, 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 well, I feel like it's amazing. I'm sure you make your own judgments, but that's cool. It's a bit like an amazing Netflix series, right? And um, and we're gonna we're actually gonna get to a point this year. I don't know where, but I felt like God was was speaking to me the other day where where we're gonna we're gonna get to the end of season one. We're going to get to the end of season one at some point and then, and then we're going to give it a little gap just to, just to create a little bit of like anticipation for season two, all right? And then we, we will, yeah, we'll get to season three. But uh, you know, there is, there is a, a danger in journeying through such a long book that we can lose enthusiasm and that's why, that's why TV shows do series. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do some seasons in Mark. Also, I feel like there's some seasons in our church where uh, we just we just want to lean into something else. Uh, but we will continue at some point. We will get through the whole book. Uh, but get get ready if we do if we do feel like the time is right to go. Ooh, I feel like it's the end of season one. It's going to be fun. This morning, though, we're in Mark two, chapter thirteen, no nope, verse thirteen. Mark chapter 2, imagine if we were at chapter 13, that would be great. Chapter 2, verse 13, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus. Anyone pregnant? It's a great name, Alpheus. Put it on your list, some predicting top baby names 2024. Son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. That's interesting, right? It wasn't a question. It was an instruction. Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and and, and eating with his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors... They asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. Thank you for your acceptance of us, Lord. God, I pray this morning that you would speak to us, that we would be open right now to hear your word. Uh, I pray that it would produce in us an incredible harvest of character and fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Online. Feel like I heard that? Put it in the chat. Amen in the chat. Come on. You know, it, it, can, be, it, can, be, it can be a little strange putting stuff in the chat, but it's, it's, a, it's a response mechanism, right? It, it pulls you out of just watching, which is not church. Church is an engagement space. It's not a performance. Church is where we come together so we all celebrate what God's done in our lives. And that counts for you online, even if you're sick, you're on the couch, whatever. Get your phone out, type it in, amen, um, and, and be involved this morning. Who remembers, who remembers, uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, this will be some of you, who remembers toll booths? Right, like I, I remember, I remember the, the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge toll booths, um, and you would pull in and you would toss your coins into the little basket. Or oh, there was a person there; there was actually a real life person, uh, right? And you would actually have a conversation with them. Um, and I felt sorry for those for those particular people. No doubt they suffered their fair share of abuse uh, at the hands of toll payees. Uh, now all we get in our interaction is a beep. Right, that's it. We just get a beep. Um, and I don't know about you, does anyone else have like a, just a split second of fear? It's like they've timed the beep just long enough after you've passed the lights and you just question, oh, did I miss it? Beep, oh. Does anyone else feel that I have like this moment every time? I'm like, oh, oh. Um, because because we like we, we we don't have it actually stuck on our windscreen. Uh, we we change our car from time to time, and it's real painful if it's stuck on there. So when Rachel and I are both in the car, there is this unspoken expectation that when I'm driving, she's on the toll e toll thing, um, and 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 so Pete would know. There's been a few times we've missed that. Um, and so there is, a, there is a track record of reason to fear, right? Who knows fear is built on your track record in the past? I wasn't even going to go there, but maybe someone needed to hear that this morning. Right. Fear is, is a false perception of the future based on how you've lived the past. One day, uh, we, were, we, were, we, were tra- we were traveling, it was the, the year that we were away, and, uh, and we were driving and we were in Croatia. Um, and Croatia, for all of their history, has not yet arrived at the point where they have the, the, the beep toll thing. They still have the real people. Um, uh, unfortunately, those real people, uh, you know, that for, for whatever reason, they don't speak English. The one that we uh, encountered didn't speak English. And we were concluding our, our driving sort of holiday around Croatia, and it was... Uh, Kind of like our extended family. My parents had come over to do this sort of this section of the trip with us. Um, we'd hired some cars at the airport and we'd been driving around, seen some amazing, it was an absolutely stunning country. But we were on our way back. And who knows when you've hired a car and, 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 and then you are getting onto a flight to fly home, you're on quite a strict timeline. You've sort of planned to arrive at the airport, drop the keys off, get in, check in, get to boarding in time. And if you've done any travel overseas, particularly in Europe, you would uh, probably have flown with a company called EasyJet because it's the cheapest way to fly. But if you have, you would know they don't book any seats, right? You, you don't get an allocated seat. What there is is a 150-meter sprint from, from the, the screen because they don't put the boarding gate up. So as the time to board gets closer, you have an entire plane full of people, like, like, packed around the TV screen. You don't want to get packed in, though, right? You don't want to get packed in, because that's bad. But, but then the, suddenly the gate will go up, and you have never seen people run so fast with a suitcase. I promise you. Like, it is on, right? Because then it's first in, best dress. They line you up, single file, and whoever is at the front of the line, they get the best seat. That's just how they do it. Um, so, So we did not want to be late, and we pulled up to this toll booth, and lo and behold, my brother who is driving the car in front of us realizes he has no cash left in whatever currency it was that we needed to pay the toll. So, so, so we are like on this, this eight-lane freeway thing that, that comes in at like three to go through the toll booths. We are in a mad hurry and we, we cannot communicate with the person because they don't speak English and we didn't speak Croatian and, 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 and he has no money and we can't get through, right? It's a stressful situation. So we're like, we're, we're literally with cars behind each other and we are jumping out, we are pulling out suitcases, we're searching for wallets, like who has cash left? And eventually, eventually we paid and we got through, but... I, we don't have those experiences anymore, right? Like we just, beep, we just go straight through the toll booth. But the person that, that is in our story today, the, kind of like the, the main character, if you will, the interaction between him and Jesus, he is someone who kind of manned one of these toll booths, right? And we've got to, we've got to, we've got to get ourselves in the cultural context of the time where, where there, when you were traveling on these ancient highways, you actually would pay a toll to enter a particular region. And, and so Levi was this person. He would sit at the collector's booth, and he would, he would collect a toll, which is really interesting. We gonna unpack that a little bit later. But, but let's look at our opening scene. Okay, Opening scene, you've got you've to read Scripture and realize Jesus, Mark, for instance, here, he didn't put these titles in. He didn't put chapter and verse. He is writing. And so sometimes stories flow through a heading. Sometimes a heading creates a really great spot, and then we get a new opening scene. This is one of those moments. We have an opening scene where Mark says, once again, he's starting a new recount of a particular time with Jesus. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. Once again, those words are there to communicate to us that this is a recurring theme. This is not a once-off practice by Jesus. This is a recurring theme that Jesus removes himself from the crowd, from the ministry, from the place of output from him, and takes himself into a place of quiet space and solitude. All right? Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, which means that when he went out by the lake, they weren't there. He had these seasons in his life, this rhythm to his life where he withdrew. And we've got to, we've got to look at the detail in Scripture. Don't just read a story and just, just skim. Too often when we skim Scripture, we miss what Jesus is really trying to articulate to us. Once again, he went out. There's this pattern, minister, withdraw. Minister in the city, the crowds. And we know already that because people have been telling their stories, he can't go into the city without a massive crowd. <clears throat> Excuse me. You realize that everything Jesus did had intention. He had he had a, a, a limited period of time. Everything Jesus did had intention. If you remember, we, we talked about this idea of, of discipline. Discipline is decided intention. Right? It's decided intention. Jesus lived with this incredibly disciplined life where he decided everything he was going to do was going to have intention. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I'm not like that. There's, there's great chunks of time in my life where I'm like just free-flowing. Like I'm, I, I will lose like an hour and a half, two hours in the evening to Netflix. There is no intention there. There is no discipline. There is no reason behind it except I literally want to have no intention, no discipline, and no reason because I am emotionally exhausted from trying to have an element of discipline in some area of my life. I'm not sure if you relate. Thank you. I appreciate that, Pastor Simo. Desire alone doesn't do it. And I I don't want to harp back around to the discipline message too much. It's on YouTube if you want to revisit it. But but discipline is what builds rhythms. Discipline is what builds routines and the routines which produce in us the thing we desire, right? Often we desire to be or act or have a certain uh, character within us. Like I desire to be generous, but then that first opportunity comes up and I'm not intentional. The discipline to engage is not there. And so we can have these desires, but lack the discipline, and we will never arrive at the destination if we don't develop the discipline. Don't miss these little things in Scripture. The next thing we get to, right, the next thing we get to is, is that once again, Mark makes a distinction between the crowd and the disciples. And we have we have picked up on this a number of times through scripture because it is incredibly important that we understand that even those who were closest to Jesus, when they went to write their story, they articulated that there was a distinct difference. Absolutely, Jesus engaged with the crowd. He ministered to the crowd. He came and 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 he met the needs at times of the crowd. But really, the people that he did life with, the people that he sat with, the people that he withdrew with to talk to to to, to you know, there was a difference between them and the crowd. Disciples followed Jesus. There's a there's a there's a pursuit articulated in that. There is a desire that is demonstrated in our response to Jesus or to the invitation to walk with him. There is, there is, there is something that we articulate in our desire, in our posture, that is, that is demonstrated by the way in which we walk with Jesus. We can choose just to be the crowd, to pop in for the miracle moments and then to disengage. But there's a difference between those who sat with him, talked with him, asked him questions uh, that, and that's the disciple. There is intimacy. There is conversation with a disciple. One of the fascinating things to do, if you're looking for a way to sort of like stir up your, your, your Bible reading, is study the people that Jesus invited to be his disciples. Now, throughout Scripture, we understand, yes, there's the 12, but there was a whole lot of others, right? And often, you know, there's, there's argument in, in scholarly um, sort of work around, was Levi actually Matthew? Right? I'm going, to, I'm going to leave one of our other pastors to unpack that. But in the next chapter, Jesus appoints his 12. And there's Matthew, the tax collector, son of Alphaeus. But this is Levi. Were they the same person? Scholars can't decide. Um, But what we do know is that there was a whole lot of people that Jesus invited to follow him who did, who then maybe Jesus didn't actually appoint as the 12, right? And so maybe Levi was one of them. We don't know, but we know Jesus engaged with him to follow him. And it's an interesting study to look at who Jesus asked to follow and what their background was because, as we've said, Levi was this toll collector, right? At that point in time in in the history of Israel, under Roman rule, Rome, the way they rule, they appoint... Uh, like sort of uh, kings, if you will, right? This is where we get King Herod, his whole family line. He was Jewish, but he was appointed by the Romans to be king of the Jews in that area, okay? And so the tax collectors, well, they actually really worked for King Herod because it was his little little region. They were called tetrarchs, right? And there was three of them around that, that particular area at that, that time, three different kings. And when you went from one tetrarch to another tetrarch, you had to pay a toll, tolls for tetrarchs, all right? And so, and so some scholars say Levi was that, that particular toll collector, right? Still, you know, pretty despised, right? Because if prior to that you could walk these highways for free. I wasn't around when the first tolls went in, but I can imagine there was a little bit of angst. Like I used to drive on this road for free and now you're telling me I have to pay and there's still potholes. Like what are you doing with my money, right? <laughs> and so some scholars would say Levi was that tax collector. He worked the toll booth right? Other scholars will put Levi in the the second tax collector category, the one that actually collected taxes on behalf of the Romans. Now, if if you're a Jewish, like, I'm collecting tolls for the roads, you weren't liked. But if you were collecting tax for the Romans, you were despised, like it was the lowest of the low job that a Jew could step into and actually actually, on behalf of the, the, the ruling, the oppressing people at that time, you were taking my hard-earned money for them. Are you, are you kidding me? Right? So, so either way, either way, Levi's not the most liked person. Okay? He's not. He, he, that's just the way things go. If, if he is a tax collector... As opposed to a toll collector, differentiation. If he's a tax collector, what we can pick up from the story is that he probably had a collection booth near to the edge of the lake, which means he was probably collecting tax from those that would fish, right? Whether it was import or export, whatever it was to do with fish, that's why it's near the lake. Now, I don't know if if you're putting two and two together here, but a number of Jesus' disciples used to be fishermen Simon, Andrew, James, John, they're all there. Who do you think collected their taxes? There's a good chance, if you if you just put some things together through Scripture, there is a potential that Levi is the one collecting the taxes from Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Don't tell me there wasn't some tension in the disciples. Do you know that Jesus' goal for us is to grow? It's a character. It's become like him. And he takes this roughly hewn tree, branch. we call it a branch. We don't even have roots, right? We're just a branch. This rough branch. And he is attempting to turn us into this beautiful thing that produces fruit. And I know we've got a number of builders in the place. But I know, I know that when you have a rough piece of timber... You've got to work on it you and know, smooth it out. You've got to work with sandpaper. And if you want to speed up that process a little bit, well, what you do is you use a harder grit and more pressure. And Jesus has a limited time. And if you have a limited time, you're looking for quick action. You're looking for quick change. You're getting the hardest grit, sandpaper, and the hard, and the fastest spinning orbital sander, and you are jamming that thing in there. That's Jesus' disciples. Three years, he's like, get me, get me the, the ones that are going to repel each other the most. We're going to put them in close proximity. They're sleeping tents together. They're going to eat together. They're going to walk everywhere together because who knows when you're tired, you're irritable, and all your stuff comes out when you're tired, right? So we're going to make them real tired. We're going to make them sleep together, and we're going to begin with people that despise each other anyway. That's like the hardest grit sandpaper you can get right there. And Jesus is like, I'm going to to put him in pressure. I'm going to put him in a pressure cooker scenario. And do you know the person who grates you is really a gift from God? Because God is trying to grow in you patience and graciousness and love and a prayer life in Jesus' name and generosity and forgiveness, and he, if, if, if all you have around you is people that just are so nice and lovely, I'm, those things won't grow. You need a bit of sandpaper. And, and, and I have noticed in my life there is a correlation between the acceleration that God wants to bring when it comes to your purpose and the, the amount or the, we'll, call it, we'll call it the grade of sandpaper that he puts around you and the pressure at which they push on your life. Because he is working. He's working on you. You just want him to work in you. And he's like, I'm working on you. I'm, I'm getting some of that stuff. I'm pushing some of that stuff out of your character. And you're like, no, I just want the blessing. And he's like, um, uh, you can have the blessing down the line, but if I don't get this right, you're not going to handle the blessing. You, 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 I won't go there. Pull out, Nate. Keep going. Smile. All right, so we got this opening scene. Jesus walking. He goes to the tax collector that the other boys in the group, they hate. They're they like, you. there's no way you're calling. And they're, they're, Jesus, what are you doing? And he's like, come follow me. And Levi's like, oh, I'm here. This guy's doing miracles. Let's go. <laughs> and the next scene, like is, oh, side note. I've got in my notes here. Side note, Levi's response was immediate to Jesus. It was immediate. I tell you, we double think the Holy Spirit so often. We get a little check, and rather than just going for it, we're like, ooh, I don't know. we gonna test this, got to think about it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Levi had an immediate response. Next scene, next scene, love this, is around a table. Next scene is around a table, right? We go from the lakeside to around the table. And I could not help but notice how often Jesus developed relationship with people around a table. Intimacy, relationship, familiarity, connection. Time and time again in Scripture, we see Jesus intentionally having these moments where he gathers around a table. And yes, this is absolutely a selfless prompt and plug for our table spaces. Because there's a reason we have them. It's because we see their value in Scripture. That it's in these spaces that discipleship happens significantly. It's in these spaces that relationship is grown significantly. It's in these spaces where we can talk about the sandpaper person in our life and someone can encourage us and they can pray for us and we can bring to people that we have a deep, genuine relationship with. And you go, you know what? God's really working on me with patience. There's this guy at the office and I'm telling you, every time he at Christmas, he brings me this gift and it is like, it's so bad, it is frustrating. That's awesome. In Jewish society, table fellowship was one of the most intimate expressions of friendship. When we get to verse 15. I've got, got a motor here. We see Jesus. This is our setting. Verse 15. Jesus, Levi, disciples, and sinners, because many of them followed Jesus. Jesus. Right, when you, uh, I'm reading the commentaries and they, they're, they're, very, they're very quick to make the distinction that that many of them followed him is in reference to the, the tax collectors and the sinners. Okay, we know there's a lot of disciples, but this particular instance, Jesus is like, there was, there, was, there was lots of sinners and tax collectors that followed him. All right, this is the scene. We've got to picture it. We've got to see it. This, this Jewish moment of absolutely clear intimacy and Jesus is setting it up with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees are there. Can I I just let you know that if you are beginning to pursue the purpose and the core of Jesus on your life, the thing that he has shaped you and formed you and anointed you to do for his kingdom, you can guarantee that there will be little voices that follow you that question what you're doing. Everywhere that Jesus went, the Pharisees could have left him alone. Oh, no. They're following after him. I mean, why are they here? Why should they care? You start pursuing the kingdom of God, you will start to notice there's some things following you for the reason and the purpose of trying to speak against what you are doing. And I love it because because Mark is building this this tension, right? We talked about this last week, but he's building this tension for the coming confrontation. I really, I, I'm really loving like Savage Jesus in Mark and his relentless, like non-negotiable attitude towards religiosity. Once again, once again, we see that the confrontation comes from an accusatory question. Let's go, let's go back to the paralyzed man the accusatory question was in their minds. This time, the accusatory question is to the disciples. Don't be shocked if the questions begin in your head, but then other people start saying things to you out loud. The number one technique of the enemy and the forces, and, and, and the forces of darkness when it comes to spiritual warfare is to pose to you an accusatory question calling into question God or yourself. He will pose an accusatory question about God's character or about your identity or your purpose. They are the three things that he is absolutely hell-bent, and I can say that because this is where he's from, hell-bent on destroying in your life, your identity, your purpose, or your perspective on God. And his number one strategy is an accusatory question. And he has been doing it since the Garden of Eden. Did God really say that? Did God really say that? Accusatory question. And I don't know about you, but they flood through my mind relentlessly. And if I am not on guard against the way the enemy tries to work in my life, I will engage the same way that Eve did. Because when, we, when, when those things happen, right, the, the, what like our defense towards that is not engagement. If you find yourself asking yourself accusatory questions that question the character or the goodness of God, those are the things that we should not engage with. We should respond to definitively. Where the model is Jesus with temptation, right? He doesn't ignore the enemy because we can't just ignore it. It will continue, We need a response. The response is not to engage. The enemy is after a conversation because in a conversation, he can bring deception, all right? In a conversation, he can twist scripture. We see it all the time. From the Garden of Eden, this is his play. From the temptation of Jesus, it hasn't changed. He will take scripture and he will tweak it. And for all of us, we generally don't know it well enough to respond to that. So we need to make sure that we don't engage in the conversation enough that he gets to that point in our heads. He wants, he wants a conversation. So he can play deception, cause doubt generating. Here's the thing though, right? He doesn't always ask you directly. He's devious. He'll make sure that you see just the right post as you're scrolling through Instagram. Just the right post that calls into question his goodness on your life. Oh, what is it happening to them? Oh, how come they got that? Oh God, you said... The Pharisees, they ask this question, well, how come he eats with sinners? It's not a question that they're curious about. It's a question of accusation. How come he eats with sinners? You see, the Pharisees, they categorized people. And this this term sinner is not just like, oh, regular people that, you know, this is a category that the, the Pharisees created that they labeled people. It was a technical class of people that according to the Pharisees represents their disdain for the law. So this is like in the Pharisees' mind, these are the worst group of people because of their approach to the law. You see, you gotta understand something about the Pharisees. What I need you not to hear is is that the Pharisees were like working on behalf of the enemy, right? Like that correlation that I drew between how the Pharisees are asking questions and how the enemy does that in our life, all right? I'm not saying that the Pharisees are working for the enemy. Don't hear that. the Pharisees at heart were sold out to the law. And this is, this is, the, this is the big crux of Mark, right? This is the big crux of the, of the confrontations that Jesus has with him. And we're just warming up, right? We're about to hit the Sabbath and I can't wait. Oh man, the confrontations Jesus has over that is equal to the level at which they held that tradition, right? But, but the Pharisees were sold out to the law as the way to God, the way to God. The more you kept it, the more right you were. The more righteous you were. Because the pursuit of humanity is to be right before God. And the Jews had received the law. Keep this. Keep this. It's the path to righteousness. That was what was in their mind. The problem was, the reality is that you could not keep it, which is why when they introduced the law back with Moses, they also introduced the sacrificial system, right? Because the law was given knowing it, cannot, it, was, there to, it was there to demonstrate our sin, therefore it was partnered with the sacrifice necessary because the, 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 the atonement for sin was always blood. Okay, so so in giving the law, it was never an expectation that they would be able to keep it. If there was no sacrificial system that came with it, well, then you could perceive that, that God expected at some point humanity to be able to attain themselves to the level at which the law uh, asked of them. But he knew they never could. It was more of a mirror. It was supposed to show us our sin and our need for a savior, right? Which is why it came with the fact that, well, when you do this, here's like a, a, a sheep or a lamb or a dove, right? But the Pharisees seem to have, got so wound up, and you get it, right? It's their history. They didn't do it, and so they went into exile. They came back from exile, but they never really stepped into the fullness of of their expectation about how God was going to restore the nation of Israel. And so they they are waiting for this moment where God sends this Messiah to restore Israel, the Israel they used to know. I wonder how many times we get stuck in what the revival in the past looked like, expect it to look the same and so try so hard to reproduce the processes that created it last time and miss that God has a new wineskin and a new wine. The Pharisees were so, so desperate to see the completion of the promise which was the restoration of Israel through a Messiah. And they were like, if we can just get other people to abide by the law. Now, they had particular bent. Pharisees, was a number of these Jewish sects, Pharisees, Sadducees, those sorts of things. The Pharisees cared the most about the purity laws because they were like, we've got to be pure before God. This is this. If we can get everybody to, to abide by all of these purity laws, God will send the Messiah and we will see the promise. So you can understand a little bit about why they were so bent out of shape. You can understand why they were so intense. We should be really careful we don't judge the Pharisees. But Jesus sure uses them as a model for us to see where we can go wrong. You see, the Pharisees' intention behind this this obsession almost of keeping the purity laws was really by definition a pursuit of self-righteousness. I had a conversation with God this week. I'm like, God, can you give me a message that is like really uplifting? Like I just, the last two weeks, they've pushed on a few things. Can this just be like, God's going to open doors in your life. It's going to be fantastic. I'm believing for me. We just have that message, God. And and I'm reading it and God's like self-righteousness. I'm like, God, that is not, that is not the message that I really wanted to bring. Because self-righteousness by definition, right, this is, this is Nate's definition. The belief that in our actions and behaviors, we are good enough to be right with God. Wow. That somewhere in us we believe, I can do it. Yeah. A step beyond that is I have done it. They believed so much in their efforts that they actually believed, thought they were elite they thought they were above they're the sinners we're here why because in our own belief i mean it might only have been 30 percent of the law that they were focusing on but because they felt like they had satisfied that particular they, they elevated themselves to a level of elitism we have to be so careful not to allow elitism into the church They believed in their efforts, that they were elite, that they were above, that they were better than the rest, that they could do it. They could perform well enough, behave good enough to be right with God. That was their core belief. And and ultimately, that was the thing that Jesus had the biggest issue with. Here's what self-righteousness produces. Disconnection. Because you separate yourself. Judgment. You develop a judgmental attitude of others. Do you realize that the number one criticism put at Christians in today's day and age is that we're judgmental? That sucks because it should be the opposite. We develop a disdain, we develop pride, a lack of compassion, and a loss of grace. We propagate elitism, we generate a self-focus. And if we keep journeying down this, this path that we actually think and believe that we're doing enough to be right, we stop needing Jesus. We stop needing His grace, His forgiveness. and you'll know where that leads. It leads to a loss of praise and worship because we lose the number one thing that should generate thankfulness in our lives thankfulness is rooted in forgiveness thankfulness is rooted in his grace not 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 because he got asked the car or the spouse or whatever it was we were praying for i mean that that can be like icing on the top of our thankfulness but true thankfulness is rooted in knowing who i was and what he's done and therefore who i am because of him that is where my thankfulness is rooted. So it doesn't matter if, if I'm having a terrible day. I've got chaos going on in my life. Everything I've been praying for is not coming to pass. I'm still thankful because I'm forgiven. Yeah. So the moment we enter into self-righteousness, we lose the capacity to root our thankfulness in that moment. And we wound up, we end up wound up, we end up pent up, we end up irritable, irate, because we're exhausted by religion. Because religion is all about self-righteousness. Every single major religion on planet Earth is about you doing better, being better, and trying to achieve a certain status before that God. This is actually where Christianity is supposed to be different. This is the one thing that sets us apart is that we don't have to. Jesus came here so we don't have to because we can't. He came because we can't. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know if you get into this one. Yeah. Every other religion says we've got to try harder to get higher. Jesus says you can't, so I'm going to come to the lowest depths oh, so that I can actually lift you up yeah. and take you to a place that you could not have attained on your own. Oh, that's so good. That's good. And Jesus' response to them is a, ba- <laughs> it is a barely-veiled calling out of their heart. It's, it's like it's like it's like it's like you know when someone has like this really veiled kind of attack at your character. This is barely veiled. Like he's not even really trying to hide that that, that 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 he's putting the knife right into the sore point in the Pharisees heart. But verse 17 is what he says, right? Verse 17. I love this quote by N.T. Wright. Human respectability can so easily mask reality. We get so good at presenting. And Jesus' response says, yeah, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And here's the thing. We're about to have an altar call because some people in this auditorium, and you need to know something. I was praying this morning and I'm like, I'm, I'm I'm putting myself on the altar for Jesus. I'm like, I know I'm human and I know I absolutely have moments where I lean into self-righteousness. I get judgy with people. You know another thing with judgment is that when we judge others, we actually set that standard within ourselves, and most of us are unhappy and dissatisfied because we're not measuring up to the own, the, old, the, 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 our, the we're not measuring up to the standard we have set within ourselves of which we've judged others. Now, I'm praying this morning, Jesus, I'm sorry. Because the truth is that all of us, every single one of us, whether you're watching online this morning or you're here in the auditorium, we are sinners saved by grace. I know some people have issues with that, but the issue that most people carry with that is the level of maturity they have to hold two truths in tension. Because the two truths here is truth. I am a sinner. I fall short of the glory of God. Absolutely, we all do, Romans tells us. But there is a truth over here, intention, that I am also forgiven. I am a new creation made new in Christ Jesus. And he who knew no sin has become sin so that I might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So I am a sinner and yet I am righteous. But if I let go of one of those, then I move into an unhealthy position in my theology, right? If I am only a sinner, then I cannot ever be right with God and I cannot come boldly into His throne room and know that I am an accepted, loved son of the Father. But if I am all the way over here and all I know is that I'm righteous, then I never consider my sin and I never bring it to Him and be thankful for His grace and forgiveness. And so our maturity has to be the point at which we can hold both truths in tension so that I am constantly, I am constantly, God, I fell short. Thank you for your forgiveness. I'm a sinner, God. These thoughts I think, these words I say, these comments I make, these things I do. But I'm so thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful for his blood. It washed me clean. I know you've removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. But if we forget that we have sin first to be removed, then we don't need this. We don't need Jesus And here's what happens, right? I promise you, I am landing this plane right now. If we don't have both of those things, and we have too heavy a sin awareness, then what we do is we, we acknowledge that we fall short. And if we can't run to the Father with that, which is what we're supposed to do, If we remain over here and pull back, that is where shame and guilt enter our lives. The unhealthy guilt. Because there is a guilt. I think it's Paul that tells us. It's always good to go with Paul. He wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. So if you're going to guess, go with Paul. There is a good guilt that comes with conviction. Oh, I did fall short. That should drive you to Jesus. That immediate moment should be the catalyst for you to flick like the afterburners of your heart straight into the loving arms of the Father who fully accepts you and in that moment receive his forgiveness you don't need to carry the weight of sin you need to acknowledge you fall short if we don't acknowledge we fall short we lack the reception of the grace that God gives us but too many people stay here where they live in the shame and the unhealthy guilt because they cannot offload the sin because they do not come to the Father. And this morning, there is a response opportunity for you to come and do that. But the other side of the tension is for those of us that for whatever reason have found ourselves in a position and a mindset, maybe even we've got some roots down into our heart thinking, I'm good. I'm better than that person. Compared with what they're doing, I'm good. But you're not. Without Jesus, we fall short. With Jesus, I mean it's awesome. I was gonna... But we've got to know we're here to be here. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to thirty in the Message, it says this: it "says You tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and recover." your life because that religiosity it strangles your life come to jesus release that let go of the attempt to be good enough and receive the grace that enables you to be in his eyes i'll show you how to take a real rest walk with me work with me watch how i do it learn the unforced rhythms of grace i won't lay anything heavy or ill fitting on you keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly Can we stand in this place, church? Thanks for making time to hear this message today. We encourage you to connect with us by heading to c3victory.org.au.